Richard Holloway until the year 2000 was Episcopal Bishop of Edinburgh. Today he talks to Michael Barclay about the support given to him by his wife Jeannie, and he finishes by emphasising the importance of Jesus to his faith. Richard Holloway, during the many years you served as a parish priest, how aware were you of the tension between being constantly available to your often very needy parishioners and being there for your family? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I got that balance right. Um, although they tell me that it was fine. I mean, we, uh, the, the rectory in Geoffrey Street, Lodder House for Old St Paul's, uh, where we were for 12 years, was a big drafty house and we filled it with waifs and strays and, and how my wife, Jeannie Coke, well, she did because she's an extraordinary calm person and she presided over a lot of this chaos and confusion. But a wee bit of me, the regretful bit of me, wishes I'd been a wee bit more present in the active life of my children as children uh, rather than being this splendid vocational priest giving himself away to everyone else. Um, yeah, there's, there's a bit of regret there. You mentioned that women often, you felt, bring a greater calmness to their pastoral care. And I imagine Jeannie, your American wife, must have needed that a bit and helped you by having it, uh, because it's a vocation in itself, isn't it, being married to a priest? Um, a lot of spouses of clergy don't like that nowadays because they, they were all, in one way, they were kind of seen as cheap help. Jeannie came from a whole lineage of clergy spouses. Her father was an American Presbyterian minister, her grandfather, so she brought with her a tradition of service. And she came from this middle-class Manhattan family into this kind of intense Scottish atmosphere and just carried it off with, with an extraordinary organised calm. We were a very good balance because I'm hasty, impulsive, she's calm and thoughtful, and I think we achieved a weird kind of symmetry. Uh, looking back, I sometimes wonder how we did put it off, but we did, and there were happy, happy years. You've chosen now to hear part of a requiem, the mm. Brahms requiem, mm. and I think this is something, actually, that Jeannie used to sing. That's right. She sang in the Edinburgh Bach Choir for years, and she gave it up a couple of years ago. And when I asked her to provide a choice, she chose the Erhapnun Traurigkeit from the Brahms Requiem. You know that I have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. Um, so this is a bit of Brahms.
Margaret Price, the soloist in music from A German Requiem by Brahms, Andre Previn conducting the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and the Ambrosian Singers. Richard, in your most recent book, Stories We Tell Ourselves, you embrace the unknowable enormity of the universe and offer actually none of the traditional religious comforts of a divine creator of life after death. And yet it's uplifting, almost celebratory, about our fleeting existence on this planet. What do you think your teenage self in the seminary would have made of it and where you have now arrived at? Or you would have hated it. Um, I said when my last sermon as bishop, I said I'd become in my 60s, the kind of bishop I hated in my 30s, um, uh, those dogmatic certain years, you know, that Christianity was a package. But I've become more comfortable with uncertainty. I think it's truer to truth and human experience. But the thing that keeps me poised on the edge of the possibility of transcendence is that it's produced us. Um, uh, we are artists in us. The universe is thinking about itself. And that's why I can't ever call myself an atheist, that the thing just popped into existence out of absolute meaninglessness and will pop back into meaninglessness. But nor am I confident about how to interpret it, which is why in that book, The Stories We Tell Ourselves, I explore all of this. I, I look at, at the arguments for non-meaning and the arguments for meaning. None of it seems permanently um, to explain itself in an absolutely convincing way, except to those who are already wanting to be persuaded that they've got it right. And as we've kept saying in this conversation, Michael, that can make you cruel because if people don't like your political or religious ideas, it gives you an excuse to persecute them. And religion has been bad at that over the years, simply because it couldn't live with this kind of mystery, this notion that it is wrestling with a reality it can't quite grasp and that it might not even be there. Um, but I come back at the end of the book to Jesus, and the big teaching of Jesus is that we must learn to forgive one another and learn to forgive ourselves, uh, which is probably the toughest thing to do. It's the essence of it. It's the thing that really matters. So I end up in my kind of religious struggles with a commitment to Jesus as the poet of forgiveness, calling us to forgive one another and, above all, to forgive ourselves because we are kin to one another and from our own weakness only will we learn that kind of supreme kindness. My God, wouldn't that be a thing to give your life to? Well, we're going to end with a hymn you sang in the seminary at Kellum, O Blessed Creator of the Light. I wonder what effect it has on you when you sing it now. I hear it at Evensong at Old St Paul's. They sing it as a plain song melody, um, and it touches me. It brings tears to my eyes. There's a kind of longing in the music, a longing for there to be a blessed creator of the light, um, a blessed and happy and loving creator, because a lot of the creators we've invented have been vengeful and killing and horrible. And so, it's again, the music aches with a longing for something that may not be there, but the longing for it can make us better people. Well, going back to plain song is a bit like going back to the beginnings of music. So, Richard Holloway, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. 
Richard Morehouse directing the choir of Hundarth Cathedral in the hymn, O Blessed Creator of the Light, with the organist Michael Hogue.
Reverend Dr. Philip Noble has many interests, which you can see on his website, bubblestrings.com. In this series on Heart and Soul, we hear him talking about different aspects of Jesus' ministry. Today, he tells us to look around. A few years ago, a friend of mine who loved outdoor events had a great experience. He went to Norway and... He was a keen skier in this country, but had only done the usual downhill stuff. He was given the opportunity to learn how to do cross-country skiing. Well, the skis are a different shape and the whole style of movement is quite different too. So he got the skis on and started after his instructor. The instructor said, just keep your skis in the same line that I'm going and you'll do fine. Well, at first it was hard to keep them in place, but then, as his experience grew a little bit, he could keep them right in the centre of the line, and on they went, down and up, slight rises, slight falls, and by the end of an hour, they'd done a complete circle and were back at the beginning. Well, how did you get on, said the instructor. Well, I think I did very well, said the man. I seem to keep up with you almost to the very end, and... Um, I'm feeling quite good. My muscles are strong. Yes, but did you see all the things, said the instructor? Did you see the bear, for instance, in the wood? And the way the sun was catching the water on the lake there? And these mountains, weren't they beautiful? The snow just glistening so much. My friend said, no, I, I didn't see any of these. I'm afraid I was looking at the ski tracks just to make sure that I could keep doing things right. He was concentrating so much and doing one thing properly, that he failed to appreciate the beauty that was all about. Jesus often talks about looking round about and saying, can't you see? In John chapter 4, he talks to his disciples, saying that there's only four months between planting and harvest, and the time is ready for harvest. Look around, can't you see? The fields are white for harvest. Don't you notice? Of course, Jesus isn't just talking about the harvest of wheat. He's talking about the harvest of people. Look around and see all the people who are ready to be harvested today in one way or another, not to be caught as uh, products for a, a great big capture into a barn or a, a large church but brought out of death into life, brought to know a new way of living, away from all the old messy stuff, into something that's fresh and clean and new and pure and beautiful to look at from any side. on 
Larry Gentis has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today he looks at some of the problems Moses faced when trying to lead the people of Israel into the Promised Land. So, we've had many problems whilst travelling to the lands God promised us, as I related with the complaints about not having any meat, shortages of water, and the people not liking to be fed with only the manna that God provided. I think part of the problems were a lack of long-term thinking and trusting God for the provisions. To me, it was obvious that we weren't going to be fed manna for the rest of our lives, but the people were always thinking in the short term. The other side of the problem is much more serious. It was a lack of trust in our God, and I, Moses, had to lead them regardless. At this point in our journey, we had to confront something that, if left, would destroy even the strongest of nations, and that is rebellion, and that especially in the leadership circles. It starts insidiously, perhaps a whisper or a conversation that plants a seed of discontent. When it grows, it's poison that slowly but surely infects people, as any pestilence will travel amongst the population. And it always starts with one part of the body, the tongue. Sometimes trouble comes from people you least expect. Miriam, Aaron, and I had been together for many months, and they had always been supportive uh, relationships and very helpful. Also, they're my family, my flesh and blood brother and sister, so I really didn't expect rebellion from them. It all started when I married a Cushite woman, and apparently some didn't like her at all. Perhaps they felt she had too much influence over me, as some wives occasionally do. At first, I didn't notice the furtive sidelong glances or the whisperings around me until it was in full force. Suddenly, Aaron and Miriam challenged me about the Cushite wife I'd married, that I shouldn't have done that. But it went much further, however. They began to openly challenge my mandate to lead the people, saying as a justification, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? 
Well, I'm a humble man, and it's not important to me through whom the Lord chooses to speak. The only thing that's important to me is that he does speak. Well, the Lord heard Aaron and Miriam's rebellious talk, so he said to the three of us, Come out into the tent of meeting. So the three of us came out to the tent. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood in the doorway of the tent, and he called to Aaron, Miriam, and myself. When we had come forward, he said, Hear now my words, if there is a prophet among you. I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant? against Moses. So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, he saw that she was leprous. Aaron quickly turned to me and implored me, saying, Oh, my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly, and in which we have sinned. Oh, do, do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Immediately I cried out to the Lord for mercy, but he said to me, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterwards she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move until Miriam was received again. After Miriam's seclusion, we departed from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So, what did I learn from this? Well, many things, but here are a few. Rebellion can start so easily perhaps with just a normal conversation that turns into gossip. Another element is perceived discontent from someone. Now, I say perceived because just the fact that a person feels hard done by doesn't mean they actually are. Then they will speak to those people in their circle of acquaintances. They will in turn spread the pestilence to others in their particular circle of family, friends, and acquaintances. It's a relentless cancer. That's how the poison grows, slowly but surely, until it makes relationships as rotten as a carcass in the desert. And again, it always starts with one part of the body, the tongue. Sometimes trouble comes from people you least expect it from. I never thought my own brother and sister would try a power grab. No, no, I didn't think that. I never thought they'd do that. I'll admit that part of me was angry at their attitudes. But the best way to confront it was to love them through it. Not the easiest way, but surely the best way, as God has loved me. This comes from the Holy Bible from Exodus chapter 12. Matthew Roger is a retired minister living in Aylith. Matthew is the local minister at Pitlochry Church of Scotland. Matthew's got a story to illustrate the importance of being prepared fire that might create a problem but always the fire inspector made sure that they did what was required and so the premises were safe until the next time 
And the strange thing was that all of a sudden, months later, year later, there came a letter to him. The letter saying that you will have a fire inspection on such and such a day and we will be there at such and such a time. And he thought, that's strange. They don't usually tell me when. And so he made sure that he and his staff had everything spit, polished, ready to be inspected. Fire extinguishers made sure that they were all working. Nothing around that would create a problem or maybe even a disaster. And they waited on the day for the inspecting team to come. And they didn't. And nor did they come the next day or even the next day. And the businessman said that, you know, I really was very angry that we had gone to all this trouble to make sure that all our fire regulations were kept and that everything was absolutely right. I was angry. But he said, the more and more I thought about it, the more and more I realized that my anger was misplaced because my premises should have been perfect all the time. You really shouldn't need an inspection for me or being told of an inspection for me and my staff to go around everything to make sure that it was okay. And he realized that the inspection in itself was not what was important. What was important was that the concept of inspection should make the businessman and all others like him make sure that they had their premises absolutely safe. Life might be in danger if everything's not kept as it should be. Whether it would be through a fire, through smoke, all the dangers that might arise, and it might happen, sadly, to an innocent person, someone who had no control over what was happening to equipment or to premises. A letter, he said, promising an inspection should not have been necessary for his business to be correctly carried out. Jesus said, be on your guard because you don't know the day or the hour. And if there are any lessons to be learned from tragic accidents or similar occurrences, then they are more about prevention rather than cure being ready in such a way that danger will not turn into disaster.
Shield and reward, my courage and zeal shall inspire. 